On March 16, 2018, the Society of Graduate Students at Western University organized a multidisciplinary conference, the theme being controversy. Gradcast was on location to chat with some of the participants and organizers. Here is what we learned. Hello and welcome to Gradcast. We are here today live from the Western Reaches Forum 2018 and we have with us for our very first guest in this session, Emily Carlisle, one of the um, organizers of this event. How are you, Emily? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Oh, excellent. <laughs> and we are joined by my co-host, Navinik. How are you doing, now? Not too bad. Good. Yourself, you man? <laughs> you know, it's been an exciting day. Just came back from lunch. So, right back to work. I do food tasteless. Okay, so Emily, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you do here at Western as a graduate student? Sure, so I'm a Master of Library and Information Science student. I started last January, so I'm wrapping it up. Probably got till August. Cool. Um, I also did a co-op at Western Libraries last semester, and I'm still there part-time, so yep, most of the time you can find me in the library. And so you are one of the, the co-chairs of the SODS Academic Committee. I am, right? yes, with yeah. the wonderful Joy Love from them. And you've all been working very hard these past few months to put on this Western Features Forum. Can you tell us a little bit about like, what is the Western Features Forum? Yeah, so the Western Research Forum is a graduate conference. It's actually the largest interdisciplinary graduate conference on Western campus. So, so our goal really with this conference is to draw in students, graduate students from all disciplines across campus and it's really an opportunity for them to engage with research outside of their department, which sometimes when you're going, you know, you get sort of siloed in your own department, focusing on your own research and what's going on in your lab. This is an opportunity to see what else is going on on campus. That's really neat. And so the theme of the conference this year is um, controversy. Can you tell us a little bit about how did you uh, arrive at this theme and what does it mean, you know, in your mind to have a conference about controversy? So that was an idea by one of um, one of our committee members and something that we all sort of were drawn in by when he started really explaining what it meant to him. So yes, controversy, you typically think of it as something that maybe brings out the riots and whatever, but mm -hmm. the way that we see it, we added the subtitle, Challenging Boundaries in Research. So it really means less about you know provoking people and more about really just going beyond those existing boundaries or boundaries that people think might exist in research and really showing how Western students are, are challenging those boundaries and doing things in new ways or doing things in unexpected ways. Um, so and we, we also thought that would allow us to continue with our interdisciplinary focus because you can do that in any discipline. You can challenge those boundaries um, in history, in science, neuroscience. Well, I was just taking a look at the posters in this, you can look at them right out of the window here, and I see quite a few interesting displays. Like I see a T-shirt over there. Like, I've never seen something like that. So the T-shirt, uh, yes, it's an advocacy T-shirt, I believe. I was talking to her earlier today. She's from the social sciences. So what is that about? This for an example for our listeners of what's what's on display over here. Out here, well, we've got posters <laughs> from, we have people from history, we have 
library and information science, we have neuroscience, we have education, we have agriculture. I can't even I can't even name them all, but we have a very broad representation. Right. So I'm now curious, like how long does it take to get everyone together and you know like organize this? Because it's pretty much every department mm-hmm. is around campus. So as an organizer for this, how long does it take? Well, I can't speak to that entire process, admittedly. So I think they started planning back in September. Um, and then unfortunately, one of the co-chairs had to step up, and I stepped in in January. So it's been it's been an ongoing process. But How did you, you know, end up as one of the co-chairs, sort of in the midst of all the preparations? Yeah, that's a funny story. Um, <laughs> No, it came from my work at the library. So I was working with Joyla and the other co-chair on the Western Graduate Journal, which publishes the conference proceedings from the forum every year. Um, so I guess they were they were publishing it in the fall. So I got to know them through my work at the library because I was working with all of our journals on campus. I heard about the committee that way. It sounded like something I was interested in. I knew they were planning for this forum. So I started in probably November. I was just a committee member, and then when the other co-chairs stepped down, they said they needed somebody. I stepped in because I'd been working with them at the library as well, so I kind of knew a little bit more about what they were doing. Yeah, so you were with the committee, you know, reasonably early on. You just stepped into the uh, the co-chair role. Yes. A bit later. Yes. And so to sort of manage and plan a you know, uh, an event of this size, like you said, right? This is the largest interdisciplinary conference mm-hmm. on the Western campus. What sort of stuff is involved? Like, what are these behind the, the scenes things? Because, you know, it seems to have gone quite smoothly so far. Well, thank you. Right? That's what we like to hear. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are the invisible things that happen behind the scenes to put this on? Okay, a lot of committee meetings. Of course, right? Yeah, because we've got a large committee. You can see most of them out there today. They've done so much work today, which kind of allowed us to sort of, myself and Joyla, to step back a bit and oversee things. Mm -hmm. So they've been managing all of the little details today. So there's a lot of room booking. Right. Because as you know, we unfortunately couldn't get one single building for the conference this year because there's things that go on that you don't know about. No, of course. <laughs> also, food booking for the wonderful lunch of the Gad Club. And there's poster boards. We had to book all these boards. Um, oh my gosh, I don't know. Social media, getting the word out right. there. That's probably the biggest thing. Oh, that's very important. I mean, it's not a sort of conference that people don't show up, right? <laughs> so, when you receive uh, abstracts from pretty much every department on, you, on campus, mm-hmm. how do you go about picking? which ones you find interesting and which ones, nah. Yeah, so all of them went through a blind review, review process by members on our committee. Um, they were each reviewed by multiple committee members um, using, using an online platform and there was an evaluation criteria that they were, that they were judging them up against. And so through there, we, the co-chairs then looked at all of the reviews that we had and we selected them based on the comments that our reviewers gave. So as a librarian, do you have like a librarian role to this, like as an archivist, something of that sort? Maybe the journal aspect, but I think that comes next. That's our next project is publishing these proceedings. Right. Or the abstracts from the conference, I guess. And when do we expect that? I think they aim for the fall every year. Sweet. <laughs>
And so I guess you've seen the back end of that. What goes on in you know putting together and publishing the proceedings of a conference like this? Right. So I think they have to the ab I think they just publish the abstracts every year. Okay. So those would go through. Well, they've already been reviewed, so that's step one. Then the next step would then be going through sort of copy editing process, then having that approved by the authors, and then compiling them, I guess, into a very similar format, and then just pressing submit on the on or publish on the online platform. Sounds just, you make it sound super easy. <laughs> All right, so uh, you mentioned that this is getting to be uh, near the end of your time here at Western. Mm -hmm. Do you have any uh, plans to do something like this in the future? Uh, continuing on in organizing and putting on conferences wherever you know life might take you later on? Perhaps. I think this was a really great learning opportunity. I think going forward there would be so many things that I have learned from this process that would help me do things differently at another conference in the future, but we will see. Well, you know, if any future um, organizers for Western Wishes Forum, perhaps 2019 and beyond, are listening to this, do you have any words of wisdom, any um, nuggets of advice you'd like to leave for someone uh, taking on a role like yourself later on? Delegate. Delegate. <laughs> That's one. Also, consult with people who've done it in the past. They have all of that wisdom that they are just, I mean, myself now, I would be happy to sit down with the people next year and just tell them what worked and what didn't. Um, I think that's incredibly important. So, say next year, someone's organizing this and they want to get in touch with you. Yeah. How would they do that? I think the songs people have my email. <laughs> <laughs> Through their proper channels. Yes. Awesome, all right. Well, thanks very much, Emily. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have you, and thanks very much for putting on this wonderful, lovely research for Well, thank you for putting it on there. Okay, welcome back to GradCast here live at the Western Research Forum 2018. For this segment, we have uh, Shelley McKellar, the invited keynote speaker for the forum, and professor here at University of Western Ontario. Uh, hello, Shelley. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Oh, wonderful. Can you give us a real quick little introduction about who you are and what you do here at Western? I'm the Hannah Chair in the History of Medicine, which allows me to work with medical students to explore history of medicine topics, both in the profession and history of disease and history of treatments. And I'm also Associate Professor in the Department of History in the Faculty of Social Science, where I get to work with social science students who are interested in epidemics and diseases. Oh, great. And so earlier today, you did deliver uh, a talk. It was entitled Artificial Hearts, uh, Boundaries Broken. Question. And given that the, uh, the theme of the conference this year is controversy, uh, that is something that had never occurred to me. Uh, what is it about artificial hearts that could possibly be um, controversial? Well, and this is the trick thing about artificial hearts, because this is a medical technology that has raised controversy both in the past and I would argue even present day. And the controversy revolves around two questions. Mm -hmm. So the first controversy since the inception had been the debatable question of could we do this? Could we actually build a mechanical device to replicate the human heart? And then later, as they were making some progress with these mechanical pumps, the, the, the question changed. Should we do it? 
and the should we do it had to do with issues of socioeconomic access, cost, quality of life, because this technology was not problem free. So this was the controversy. When is the technology good enough to implant in patients, and is there a boundary or limits to this technology? Oh, wow, that is absolutely fascinating. Um, can we start with the first part? Could you uh, give us a little quick summary, a little quick history about, you know, the could question. What do we have to overcome to be able to, to develop artificial heart technology? And it seems like an obvious question, could we right. do it? And in the turn of the 20th century, there were leading surgeons of the day that said the heart was untouchable. Do not use the scalpel. It is not something that we can fix. Mm -hmm. So do not even try to do anything about it. No cure for a broken heart. Eh? No cure for a broken heart in any way, shape, or form. And then by mid-century, they started to reevaluate that question and reevaluate the question based on the heart-lung machine, the bypass machine. So this is a large machine that actually a patient is in the operating room. Mm -hmm. Their blood is circulated outside the body so you can work on the heart that is now still. And the problem with the heart-lung machine is that while it was perfected and it worked very well, there's a time limit. You should only be on it three, four, maybe five hours, mm -hmm. and then you have to be off the machine, otherwise there's problems to the body. So then the scientists got together and said, well, if we could do it on a temporary couple hours, why can't we build a machine that would actually allow us to replicate mechanical circulatory support for longer periods of time? And that was the artificial part. As an external machine that does exactly the order from heart? Parts of it were external. So when you think of the heart, you say, this is an organ, we will try to replicate its function. So by the 1950s and 60s, we had an artificial kidney machine, and that, you're quite right, is an external machine. It's about the size of a small washing machine that you're hooked up to, to actually um, take over the function of your kidney. So the heart, they said, well, the heart's just a pump. It's a pump in your body that moves blood. On a, you know, oxygenated blood throughout your body. So we know how to build pumps, the Americans would say. Mm -hmm. So let's build a pump. But the problem is you had to build a pump that was actually able to be fit in the body, and the body is a very hostile environment. So you have a foreign object now in your body, so how is that going to work? So they thought the task would be quite easy, and they found out it was quite difficult. Because the pump is inside your body, but to power it, the power source is outside your body, and that can be a large piece of equipment. As in, so what's 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 specific about this pump that makes it challenging? Like, what is it? What is it so intricate that I can't just use a pump? Well, there's three things they have to address with this pump. One, they have to have a pump that is durable enough to respond to the body's needs, so that it has to work quickly if you need it to pump blood quickly as you're climbing the stairs, or it needs to be less vigorous if you're sitting down watching TV. So it has to respond to the body. So it's not a pump at one time motion. Second thing is it's a pump that has to work with the blood. It's pushing blood, so it has to have biocompatible material so that the blood won't reject. And it has to be able to move the blood fast enough that it doesn't blood doesn't sit and clot, but not too slow that it actually sits and cools. And that's a problem. Okay. So where are we now in terms of artificial heart technology? Artificial hearts are a clinical reality. We have them, and we are using them, and they are extending people's lives. Oh, so wow. this is a success story, right? Right. Not so much. Oh. Not so much. The problem is this technology works well, good enough for short periods of time, but not long enough for a the obvious answer, which would be to defy death. Right. So, so what sort of timeline are we talking about? 
It depends on the patient. Okay. So in many cases, there's a variety of devices. There's not just one artificial heart. There's many artificial hearts, depending on the indication. I would like an artificial heart device or an assist device to my disease chart to help me wait for a donor heart. So I need it temporarily. So I'll have this device maybe on the outside of my body. It's only going to be a matter of months, hopefully, and I'll have a donor heart. And there's other group of patients who need a permanent implant device and maybe their heart is so badly damaged they cannot just survive with an assist device they need a replacement device both right and left side of the heart and in that case the longer this device stays in the body the higher you are at risk things like seizure strokes infection and device malfunction so what's the world record for longest sustained artificial just over five years just over five years for the total artificial heart and it's a turkish patient was actually implanted with the Sincaria total heart, which is the only total artificial heart that has been approved by all three major granting agencies in terms of the FDA, Health Canada, and CE conformity in Europe. And he is still listed as a bridge to transplant, but he's literally still waiting for a donor heart. It's only approved for temporary use. We've had better luck with the less glamorous sibling, I call it, the partial artificial heart for the ventricular assist device. And we've had people for eight or nine years being supported by the ventricular assist device. And people, I think, are more comfortable with that. They're more comfortable for doing reasons. One, they've seen people with them and survived them. Uh, former Vice President Dick Cheney was 20 months supported by a heart mate 2 ventricular assist device. And B, what happens if the ventricular device actually fails? Well, you still have your diseased heart that's doing a little bit of blood pumping, so it's not game over immediately. Right. And there's a funny story of uh, uh, Peter Houghton, who was a VAD implant patient in Britain, who lived seven and a half months with his Jarvik implant, his Jarvik pump, and he's actually a tropic, and he got mugged. He got mugged in that they grabbed his bag over his shoulder, and over his shoulder bag was the power source that was powering the bag. Mm -hmm. So the robber took, grabbed the bag, and took off. So what happens is wires go off, the robber got, you know, a bit flustered, drops the bag, and heads out. And so poor Peter Hutton had to crawl hands and knees to where the bag was at the other end of the store. So good news that he did survive, right? It was all fine. But that's because he had his natural heart to actually right. pick up the what you need to do for the couple minutes. So some of the, you know, uh, pitfalls or problematic aspects of a full heart replacement. But I guess this brings us to the other half of uh, the two-part sort of controversy. What is the controversy around whether or not we should do these operations? Mm-hmm. So the argument should we do it has been raised by a lot of bioethicists, particularly down in the United States, where in their healthcare system, is this better resources spent on preventative and other treatment options, whether in this high-cost, high-technology medical world of artificial hearts, which is really for a very small patient population mm-hmm. with sort of good results. Can't guarantee good results, sort of good results. Because if you if you think about the patient population who would receive an artificial heart, they have explored all other options. So no longer is the drug regimens working for them. They've already had maybe a pacemaker in them or a stent in them. So this is kind of their last therapeutic option before palliative care. Okay. Which means that their body's probably compromised with other things. So they might have renal problems, might have respiratory problems. So even if the pump works exquisitely, their bodies are somewhat compromised because they're in late stage heart failure. So this is like a very, very last ditch kind of thing. It is a last resort treatment. So the controversy was about should is it really worth extending the life? Like when when 
we have all these other organs failing. Like, is it? And if you're on your last branch, cracking on the last branch, is it really worth? That's exactly the thing. So is this really extending a useful life, or is it just extending death? Is it life-sustaining, returning to near-normal life, or extending death? So we're just trying to drag out the inevitable. Okay. So taking that line of thought and extending it perhaps uh, into the realm of science fiction, <laughs> I'm reminded of one of my favorite uh, movie scientists, Dr. Ian Malcolm, who once asked, um, or once stated, that scientists are often so preoccupied with whether or not they could mm -hmm. that they never stop to think whether or not they should. Are there any potential problematic aspects in um, this idea that we can, we have the technology, we can rebuild just the human system and all the parts, and then, like, where are we after that? I think that's a good point, because I had to go back and ask, who are the stakeholders? Who's mm -hmm. invested in this technology? And what kind of perspective and bias them towards one line of attack or another? And I actually went and met a lot of these researchers who tend to be clinicians or surgeons. So they're seeing these patients die in front of them. Right. And they really are invested in helping their patients. I don't think it is a lot of ego and making money and they're kind of divorced for it. They do are on the front line and they see the need for it mm -hmm. with the rise of heart disease. And I should say that even though things like coronary artery disease are on the decline, the number of heart failure cases is on the rise. Why is it on the rise, you say? Because we're getting better at treating disease. People are surviving heart attacks, which means that they're going to go to old age and they're going to have more compromised problems because heart failure is a chronic accumulative disease. So solving all the other problems, it ends up being this maybe uh, less obvious disease that does what we're going it does. And I think with a lot of the clinicians and surgeons have their, you know, their hearts in the right place, huh. um, <laughs> intended, uh, and in trying to help their patients. But I think the question of should we do it was starting to be asked by bioethicists. Mm -hmm. So bioethics, when you think about it, really comes of age in the 1980s. So when this project started, building artificial hearts in the 1950s and 60s, bioethicists weren't part of the game. So it's rising stakeholders or players in this drama, in this controversy, 1980s and 90s bioethicists are really taking a more active role. So they might be part of that family decision-making about here's your treatment options, which ways would you like to go, and making sure that all the information is there. Now, when you mentioned, when you mentioned drama and such, I was just reminded from your earlier talk today of how much this almost reminded me of the space race that happened around the same time. Like, of of different surgeons trying to one-up each other and trying to make the big breakthrough of a successful transplant. And even when, as you mentioned, success wasn't clearly defined. Mm -hmm. So That's you... exactly right. There's a lot of egos in place. There's a lot of people's research programs being competitively balanced, who's getting the most research money. There's a lot of emphasis on who's going to be the first, which device is going to get implanted. But I'm glad you raised the point about the space race because there was a US-USSR right. relationship at this point. So even, even for the artificial heart? For the artificial heart. Okay. So in the 1970s, Michael DeBakey led the, the, the US component and working with Russian um, developed scientists, they actually created a US-USSR research program in which the Russians would come over and, and spend time in our labs and the Americans would go over there and spend time in, in the uh, Russian labs. And there was this American pitch to Congress to anti-up NIH mindfulness research. They said, listen, the Germans are developing 
The Japanese are working on it. The Russians are working on it. You don't want this science and technology project developed elsewhere. You want it developed here. So there was a bit of a competition to be able to claim that innovation. All right. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us today, and thank you very much for coming to the Western Research Forum. Well, thank you for having me. And for those of uh, our listeners who want to learn more about this, you have a book all about the, uh, the development of the history of the artificial hearts. Yes, my book was just published last month in February 2018. It's called Artificial Hearts, The Allure and Ambivalence of a Controversy on Medical Technology. Well, Dr. McDonough, thanks very much for, uh, for being here with us. Thank you. You have been listening to part one of GradCast on Location at the Western Research Forum. We are GradCast, the official podcast and radio show of Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. You can catch us every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on Radio Western or on our website at gradcast.ca. If you'd like to contact us to be part of our committee or if you want to be on the show, you can reach us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And Gradcast Radio is now on Instagram, so please check us out. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.